This is the English Heritage Podcast. Hello and welcome back to your weekly podcast into England's past. I'm Charles Rowe. Don't forget to join us every Thursday for brand new episodes. Now this week we're focusing on the stories, significance and safeguarding of the many ruins English Heritage cares for. We'll discuss their historical value, their architecture and design, why they're often left as they are, and the challenges of protecting them for the future. Joining me to discuss these are Head Properties Curator Dr Jeremy Ashby and Properties Curator Sam Stones. So if we could start with you, Sam, how would you define a ruin? How do we define a ruin? Yes, it's a very good question. I think we all instinctively picture the same thing when we think of a ruin. An old decaying building, perhaps of stone maybe, no roof, maybe even a bit of ivy growing on it. But really defining what makes a ruin is an interesting question. So there's several dictionary definitions that refer to the remains of something destroyed or buildings or cities that have been damaged. So a ruin can be a structure that was once complete and functional, but it now has to be incomplete and not functioning. So there's a loss of material and a loss of original function. But also I think there has to be some action. There has to have been something that led to that physical loss. And that can be deliberate human action. So I'm thinking of things like war, purposeful dismantling, It could just be the general theft of materials or maybe even just natural processes. But it is worth mentioning that ruins can also be prehistoric sites. So broadly speaking, prehistoric to the present day, the actions of man kind of interference in the building or the actions of geography or nature, really. Yes, and they can start in a wide range of states. So a ruin can be a ruined castle, a ruined country house, a ruined earthwork, as we just mentioned, a ruined prehistoric site. So there's a wide variety of things, but I think the thing that they all have in common is that they are somehow incomplete, that we have lost something, and that loss is part of a process. And usually that process is ongoing. Incomplete, but there is a full story to tell, or at least a partial one, from what we can glean from these kinds of ruins. I think as well, it's important to sort of define a ruin as something that's quite romantic. Jeremy, why are you so attracted to ruins? And do you have a particular favourite site? Of all the many favourites I have, I've got to pick up one of all. Dunstanborough Castle on the coast of Northumberland, north of Hadrian's Wall. It's very wild open landscape particularly if you approach it as I first did along the path from the village of Craster you can't drive to Dunstanbury you've got to walk there and it's about two miles walk it's the site where I really fell in love with with ruins a few years after I'd started at English Heritage actually and I've been thinking about ruins for ages but Dunstanbury taught me something really interesting until that moment I think I'd always thought as I'm sure many people do of ruins as as Sam said as incomplete buildings and instinctively you know I wanted to reconstruct them in my own mind and to think about how the sites were when they were operational and the thing about Dunstanborough is it's very incomplete it's very ruined because the loss of stonework and the actions of the sea and and the wind has actually carved it into a very excitingly jagged shape it looks like someone once said it looks like Monument Valley in Utah you know Mm -hmm. it's it's, it's sort of strange twisted columns of, of stonework and what I suddenly was struck by is that actually 
that site as ruin is hugely striking as it is. You don't have to see it as an inferior version of the complete building as it once stood. And once I'd mentally made that leap, then all sorts of things became interesting and worthy of debating. So while I am still interested in how the building was, probably it looks more interesting, more exciting now than it actually ever did even when it was complete. Yes, I think I understand where you're coming from on that. It's almost like the attraction to the ruins is because it's not complete. It's like an incomplete puzzle. And therefore the fun is sort of explaining the mystery and explaining the history. Yeah, that's absolutely right. The the idea of it as a puzzle is certainly something that, I mean, I feel quite strongly, but I suppose all I would make to say is that for people that don't want to engage with it as a puzzle, you can enjoy it as it stands at the moment. For some sites, actually, they've been ruined quite a lot longer than they ever were operational sites. So actually, just to write off the period of ruin as being actually something best glossed over maybe doing a disservice to actually the reality of of the site's history where sometimes their history as a ruin is a long and can be a really quite quite involved quite eventful one okay jeremy so can you describe some of the different kinds of ruins that we can see across the english heritage collection we touched on a couple of them we've got a lot of abbeys and castles there's no doubt about it generally these are built of stone they come often can survive quite well because the medieval builders if they could used construction with thick walls with two skins of dressed stones on the outside and then a rubble core in the middle so actually that's that's a lot of material and we've got hundreds of examples of those so think of things like the monasteries at Revo or Whitby or Castle Acre Priory and of course as we've already mentioned castles very dear to my heart sites like Dunstanborough or Kenilworth, Carysbrook or Clifford's Tower we've got them all across the country we've got a lot of Roman structures too and by definition they come to us as ruins i mean hadrian's wall is a ruin you know it doesn't ever stand to its complete height it's lost its crenellations it's lost its wall walk but actually in parts of cities you know the basilica at roxeter in shropshire is a very important public building surviving in ruined state some roman buildings are thinner walled they can be built of brick so bathhouse at ravenglass in the lake district is is, is one that, that springs to mind and they're all over the place too There's one group of ruins I'd also like to flag up, because ruins don't stop with the Romans in the Middle Ages. We get more recent ones too. So even country houses of of the period after the Middle Ages, things like Kirby Hall or Hardwick Old Hall or Whitley Court, we have them in a ruined state too. And that can be really interesting because unlike these medieval buildings they're generally built with thinner walls so technically they throw up a number of problems and i think we're going to come back to this later what we do with it and then finally we've actually got some some really very modern things particularly military structures where you know they can be built of non-traditional materials so you know we've got the ruined remains of concrete gun batteries at some of our coastal forts like langard in, in suffolk So a really very wide variety of sites of all periods, in all areas, in all different materials. Mm, So many testaments to architecture, to civility, to war, lots of different stories and chapters in the human condition of the uh, English nation and the British Isles then, really. 
I'd certainly say that. I mean, the interest and importance of the site is not always, you know, directly related to the state in which it comes. And much as I wouldn't want to downplay the interest and importance of things that still have roofs and contents and all that kind of thing, actually some of our most precious evidence of history is from, from our ruin sites. In that respect, you might say that they are important and rewarding, even though they are incomplete. Yes, exactly. I think people's responses to ruins are usually very individual, but generally they can be very rewarding. So for Jeremy and myself, people that work with castles, people that know a bit about castles, they can still provide a puzzle, which is fantastic and stimulating and interesting as we try and unpick them. And that in itself is very rewarding. But there is something, as you said, um, they reflect the human condition the variety of ruins that we have in our care, the variety of things that have happened to them, the the history that they represent, all represents that human condition. And for those reasons can be considered beautiful and can provoke a very emotional response, actually. They can be sat in a very beautiful landscape and can become part of that landscape. And I think we'll also talk a bit more later about how that in itself is part of the history of ruins. But heritage practitioners have tried to really formalise that way in which ruins are important and how they're significant. And we call that heritage values. We define historic places in four different ways. We think of evidential value, and that really means the archaeological value. So what does the actual physical remains of that structure, what can it tell us? What does the fabric of the site tell us? We have historical value, which is all the wonderful historical events or historical people that can be associated with a place. And that's why it's important, because somebody lived there or somebody built that place. The third one is aesthetic value. And that comes back to that sense of ruins being dramatic or evocative or romantic. What is it that they look like? It can also be about how they were designed as well. So they may be formally designed and so we can add value to that and the fourth of the heritage values is communal value and I think that strikes back to that idea of ruins speaking to everybody individually and having very different meanings to different people or different groups of people so some of our ruins are ruined abbeys for example ruined religious centers they hold a very special place in some people's hearts because of that religious association so it's very interesting to consider all the different ways that ruins can be meaningful or rewarding to us now you've been describing there the very formal approach that english heritage has taken to classifying its various ruins in its collection But did we always look at ruins in the same way in the past? I mean, obviously some of them have been ruined for a very, very long time. Stonehenge, for example, is a ruin, but it's the jewel in the crown of the English Heritage Collection, really. So how has our view of ruins changed as humans over time? In some ways it's changed a lot, and in some ways there are strands that that run through constantly. And much as we might be tempted to laugh at the credulity of earlier ages, when people used to see write about ruins as being the works of magicians and giants and other things of that kind, you know, (laughs) I wouldn't say that stuff always goes away. But 
a really big strand in it, which certainly is still prevalent today, is the concept of the romantic ruin. And I think many people will know that that's quite a big cultural strand, particularly in English history and art and appreciation of landscapes. And we often think of these things in the context of writing in the 18th and 19th century. So if you think about a ruin within its landscape context, particularly the ruin being colonised by vegetation, by ivy growing up there, which is not just actually it, it has an important effect on its the way that the ruin appears, the way that people like it, and often it can soften, you know, the masonry, you know, which otherwise feel, feels very very hard and, 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 and linear. But it also speaks to some sense of loss, you know, that once upon a time there was a great city here and it's now been allowed to decay. And this is a, it's a quite powerful emotional thread that once upon a time has now passed away. Mm. Um, famously, the writer Edward Gibbon wrote the massive work, The Decline of the Roman Empire, largely prompted by actually seeing the ruins of the Forum in Rome, where the centre of a, of a great empire was now tottering and, you know, largely fallen down. And as we sort of go on in the 19th century, particularly, there were lots of debates about what to do with ruins and whether they should be restored and whether buildings that had changed in their appearance should be restored, you know, as well. And some pretty powerful intellects weighed in on this. John Ruskin, who's a great writer on matters of architecture, he really didn't like restoration because what he felt was that buildings, particularly in the Middle Ages, had been produced by a specific craft tradition that doesn't exist anymore in the modern nasty industrial world that he didn't like. And he Mm. felt that for 19th century people to try to recreate that idyllic world of the Middle Ages, as he perceived it, was dishonest and false. And more than that, he also doubted that modern craftsmen would would actually have the excellence of their predecessors. So he was very anti it. And his ideas got taken up by perhaps a better known figure, William Morris, who's a great architect and designer and the figurehead of a movement that we call the Arts and Crafts Movement who actually put a lot of this thinking down into the manifesto of a pressure group that's very much with us today and much admired, much respected, called the Society for the Protection of Ancient Buildings. And interestingly, they were protecting ancient buildings from restorers. What they really, really hated was the fact that centuries of change in parish churches across the country were being erased as architects wanted to put back their idea of what the churches had looked like in the Middle Ages. And so they were losing all the evidence of how things had changed in the 16th century when the Tudors came in and the box pews of the 18th century and all that lot. They were all going. These debates, you know, they're not limited to the 19th century. That Actually, they still sort of stay with us very much, you know, in the present. Has the romanticisation of ruins been pretty consistent over time, do we think? It's a very interesting question. I mean, I don't know what Sam thinks about this. I mean, I think it, it ebbs and flows, really, but I think it never completely goes away. And I certainly, as someone working for an organisation like English Heritage, as the successor of the Office and Ministry of Works, who've been working on this kind of stuff for, for more than a century, if we do certain things like clearing away vegetation, actually, we often do expect to get letters from people saying, I really loved it the way that it was before when when, when the walls had been softened and when there were trees and other things of that Mm. kind. And I think for me, what this just demonstrates is, is, is the great plurality of viewpoints and the wide range of ways in which actually people respond to these sites. So to come back to something that Sam said, 
actually it's a very individual thing it's quite visceral i think in the way the way that people think about it it's an awful lot of it is about how they feel rather than how they think yes i agree it's a sort of artistic thing rather than a scientific thing I can see how the ivy can be seen as attractive because there's the green contrast against potentially the sort of yellowish stone. And you can also sort of see the sort of passing of time in a way. The fact that that stone still stands, it's standing there jagged as you've sort of described. But yet there's this vegetation crawling all over it and it's almost like that is the passing of time. And that's sort of quite a romantic, artistic vision. So we've established that English heritage has the four heritage values for curating these ruined properties or sites. What challenges does that view present? The question of ivy is one that we deal with on a day-to-day basis and as Jeremy just said when we remove ivy from a castle wall for example we can expect people to comment on it and sometimes not very favourably. They love their ruin and they love the way that it looks with the passing of time being very obvious. But to get slightly more technical and practical about it, ivy's not really the best thing for ruins, unfortunately. Really? Um, It can be really, really harmful. And this comes down to some of the the ways that ivy grows. I mean, it's not the only type of vegetation that can be harmful, but it's usually the most obvious and the most visual. So... We tend to remove ivy because of its roots, because of the way it can crawl into all the cracks, all the crevices, all the ledges. Ruins are full of those little holes and ledges Mm. because of the way they've broken down over time. So they're particularly vulnerable. So unfortunately, from a conservation of ruins point of view, If we want to maintain them and conserve them for people in the future to enjoy in the way that we enjoy them now, we often have to remove that ivy to get to the bits that are underneath. And I suppose it's sort of creeping into the mortar between the stones and this sort of thing and uh, and making the holes bigger. Is that right? That's exactly it. So ruined walls, as Jeremy said, tend to be stone or brick, perhaps, with a lime mortar. And lime mortar, even on a building that's functioning, is something that you would expect to replace. It's kind of, we term it as sacrificial. It can be quite crumbly, actually, quite a lot weaker than you would expect. I mean, we're used to uh, cement mortars these days with buildings being very hard and solid, but that's really not the way that a lot of our ruins were built. So mortar was meant to be replaced and maintained over time, even in a functioning building. So you can imagine how crumbly a lime mortar would be now that it's hundreds of years old. And ivy loves lime mortar, it loves to get into those cracks. And other types of plants, actually, such as valerian, plants that have very deep woody roots that grow into the cracks, into the core of the walls. Of course, they just expand and that physical expansion of the roots pushes the stones and the mortar out and can cause cracking, which causes more space for vegetation, more space for water to get in there. And over time, it it just can completely destroy a wall. Ah, I see. I'm I'm getting a picture now of why plants and vegetation can be a real pain. Just to jump in, if I may, there's an interesting duality into this discussion. Some of it's about conservation, and as Sam has said, some of these plants can do a lot of actual physical damage, and a vast amount of ivy on a quite flimsy wall will eventually probably knock it over as the wind, you know, catches it. 
and it will also conceal all sorts of what's going on underneath. You can't really make a proper inspection about what's going on with the wall if it's covered covered with ivy. So that's one thing. But I would also like to make the point that actually related to that are presentational debates. And take the historical story forward a little bit. I mean, in the early 20th century, the Office of Works did a huge campaign of, of taking sites into guardianship and conserving them. And they were all presented in a very similar way with billiard table level lawns and all vegetation stripped from the walls and, and all, all, all that. And I think what I would say is that that definitely there were practical good reasons for it. But I do wonder whether actually it also fitted the mindset of the time that a lot of the people involved, you know, had had military backgrounds, among other things, and they really wanted to demonstrate that good order was prevailing. So, <laughs> you know, in so doing, you basically have to keep nature in check and to strip that back. And of course, what we've realised is that actually there's nothing particularly natural about having mown grass all the way around around sites. Actually, we've experimented with letting wildflower meadows grow, you know, around the perimeter of some of our sites. And actually, you know, we asked people what they think. Actually, people love it. Mm. And something that hopefully we may come back to talking about conservation in a minute is the concept of soft capping, about actually encouraging turf to grow on the tops of water. Walls. And to give you an anecdote about another site that's very dear to me, Hales Abbey in Gloucestershire, which is a very fragmentary ruin, we asked people, you know, what they thought about us encouraging vegetation to grow in certain contexts, so, you know, across that site, expecting that we were going to get quite a lot of criticism. Uh, people would say that we'd let the site go, and actually by far the greater proportion of responses was very positive about this, that people like the idea that actually the monument still sits much more harmoniously within a natural landscape. And I think that speaks quite a lot to the spirit of the age in which we now live. So, as I say, there's debates about conservation, there's debates about presentation, and they are closely interrelated. Very interesting. I didn't appreciate that at all. So potentially you could have sort of flowers, wild flowers growing out of a turret or, uh, you know, a rampart or something. Yeah, you could do. And you have to ask yourself the question, you know, what effect is that going to give? Because it will give a visual effect, it will have consequences for conservation. But you also want to think about, you know, how are people going to appreciate that site? And if we, with our presentation interpretation hat on in English heritage, want to emphasise, you know, that this was a, you know, a fine work of military architecture and, you know, on which the, the security of the realm depended, then the wildflowers might seem a little bit out of out of context. And that's the discussion that's, that's got to be had. And the discussion's got to involve the widest range of people, because you will have some people that would say, frankly, I'd rather see the wildflowers, and you'd have other people that go, no, this is a disservice to our history. So you've got to try to balance all of these different arguments. Yes, that really is a difficult dilemma. I must say, from my perspective, the image of flowers and wild meadows and bees and wildlife around all these dead, shall we say, sites is actually quite an interesting image and quite a sort of romantic and um, powerful image. It's almost like nature has taken over and the site, for all its horrible history, potentially, is now at rest. Ah, but can I just sort of jump in there? Because actually you just, in using the word dead, you actually just said something very interesting. And I know you're not the only person that would use that term. So so that's not what I'm, what, what I'm arguing with. But it's 
probably not really the impression that we would want to give that 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 history is over and that all things are now in stasis yeah i should probably apologize for sort of suggesting that they're dead i suppose what i'm trying to say is that they belong to a period in the past and that the present is is now sort of taking over the site although the past should still be recognized as being the past yeah i'd say that that's probably right but i mean i think i would come back to my main point which is that for different people they're appreciative of different things so there are some people for which monuments are primarily evidence for the past and obviously you know i couldn't do the job that i do without acknowledging that that's very important but just the same time there are other people for whom actually the appeal of a site in its present day state that may be completely unrelated to its history may take greater greater precedence so how does English heritage take an approach to conservation, restoration, if necessary, interpretation of the sites, whether that means building structures that help people explore the sites? I'm thinking of places like Kenilworth Castle, where there are now timber and metal structures that allow you to climb up through what would have been some very, very tall buildings. How does English heritage approach all this? I presume it's a case-by-case basis. I guess the conservation of ruins is a balancing act. We take those heritage values in the way that we've been discussing. We we use them to understand what's important about a site, about a historic place, and we call that significance. So what's significant about this place? And that helps us to identify what we need to keep and what we need to conserve, which bits are really important to maintaining that significance. So that lets us really identify what we need to do at a site. On the other hand, there's all the practical technical considerations that we've also alluded to. So we'll take all our expert knowledge of stone, how stone works, how mortar works, and we'll start applying that into creating repair techniques that will repair ruins in the best possible way. So we combine those two things together to create conservation approaches so that we are maintaining the ruins to the best of our ability. I think the really interesting point that you've been kind of touching on is that the best of our ability and the ideal way in which we do that changes over time. So it it is a reflection of the modern day that we would be happy to see a thing called soft capping going onto broken wall heads. walls that have lost material at the top won't function quite as well as a fully formed wall, for example. So we've just introduced soft capping onto the late 15th century brick precinct wall at Bishop's Waltham Palace in Hampshire. Mm. And it's a huge stretch of brick wall that had not been in the best condition for a couple of years. It had lost a bit of material at the top. So we went in and we repaired that. But we knew from research, from conservation technical advice that's available to us today, and perhaps wasn't even available 20 years ago, that introducing a soft cap, so a layer of turf with sedum and wildflowers, would be the best possible way of conserving that wall into the future. Our predecessors of the 20th century, those Ministry of Works people, they were very fond of concrete. And they thought that was the material that was going to save and preserve and conserve all of our beautiful ruins. I'm slightly squirming at that, I must admit. (laughs) (laughs) But they were doing the best that they thought at the time. Concrete is very strong. Cement is very strong. 
and unfortunately can be very harmful to ruins. I've talked about how soft lime mortar is, how soft stone can be actually, when you compare it to uh, cement. Cement just doesn't particularly work well. Currently now we're working with the best of our knowledge with softer materials, bringing in soft capping and it's interesting how we've got that technical knowledge but also that ability to read and understand and value a ruin in different ways. It doesn't have to be completely cleared of vegetation anymore. Yes, it, the approach sounds very fluid in that those perhaps those heritage values, those four values could even change over the next 10, 20, 30 40, 50 think, years, whatever. I think they almost certainly will. And as Jeremy mentioned, I think that stripping back of sites in the 20th century was very focused on what we would call evidential value and probably historical value as well. So they were very clear that the thing that was important about a ruin was the material that you could see, the historic material, and you needed to be able to see all of it. And often, actually, they would take away later, strip away later additions, just so that you could really see that medieval abbey. They weren't necessarily as concerned as what had happened to it afterwards. It sounds as though, then, that the history of conservation of ruined sites could be a new subject in itself, the fact that it changes over time. I, you know, it definitely should be a subject in itself because it's really complicated. And actually, I mean, people have written books about this. There's quite a lot. And I think that leads us very neatly into one of the, the sort of elephant in the room questions about this, the question of whether ruins should ever be rebuilt. And mm. I know this is a question that's come up a number of times in, in podcasts, so, so it's, it's clearly of interest to people. And I think some visitors who've travelled on the continent might have been to uh, places, for example, Carcassonne in France, where actually in the 19th century, a ruined medieval castle and a medieval walled town were very largely rebuilt by an architect of, of some genius called Viollet-le-Duc. And I'd been taught by English specialists that, that I should absolutely hate this. And so I went there as a, as a visitor. I have to say, I adored it. I've been working on castles for years. And it taught me a lot of things that, that I'd never seen anywhere else. It certainly gave, gave me insights. And, you know, in our own estate, the lovely Carthusian Abbey at Mount Grace in Yorkshire, you know, you've got a lot of ruins of the cells of the Carthusian monks. And then in the 19th century, in, in, in about 1900, the owner of the site reconstructed one of them. And you'd certainly get a really good idea of what it was like to be a Carthusian monk. I have to say, possibly a slightly... Um, well, off positive one. idea. You know, yeah. In the depths of winter, it might have been dreadful because it now looks like an absolutely gorgeous, um, you know, small house yeah. with a garden and other things. And I think, yeah, I it's could, like a I duplex apartment, but on the ground floor. Absolutely. But the, the, the point is, you know, we, that sometimes reconstruction can be can be very effective. But the tradition in England is different because of Ruskin and because, you know, we've talked a bit about our predecessor in the Office of Ministry of Works. They had a very strong principle that's called conservers found you do the barest minimum of actual physical changes to a site that will keep it standing but otherwise you make it stable and you make it as intelligible as possible so that visitors can come along and interrogate it and you know i've got a lot of respect for this and it's certainly the tradition in which i was trained up but the problem with that is that basically there comes this moment when as a visitor you're sort of on your own you've got to try to figure out what's going on Yes, we, and, and, and just to say, um, Mount Grace really 
does tell a great story of what it would be like to be that monk in that property with your little garden round the back and your tall wall and the views of the Cleveland Hills in the background. Absolutely. I mean, it, you can really, really get a sense of what the isolation and spiritual contemplation would have been like. Yeah, I, th- I think that, that that's right. The actual process of reconstruction, I think the craft tradition thing, can tell us an awful lot about the challenges that our historic predecessors faced in building structures. We've got to basically redo their work. So that's certainly true. Reconstruction can be quite good for maintenance as well. Ruins, as I say, there are inherent problems with the conservation of ruins. There's a lot of care and attention that you've got to have to keep a ruin in a good state. And actually, a building, it can, in certain circumstances, be relatively economical to keep it in good condition. So those are the pros, but there are a number of cons as well. And the really big one is how much conjecture would you have to use in order to rebuild it? And often this is the killer, and it's one that theorists of policy have been struggling with for ages. There's actually an international standard of this that's called the Venice Charter, which went out in 1964. And what that said is actually restoration should be the exception rather than the rule. You can only do it if your information is excellent. It shouldn't involve the removal of material from different periods in order to display one period and most importantly it stresses the authenticity of historic material so it says if you put in new material it should be in harmony with what the historic stuff is but it should be clearly distinguishable from it that is to say that someone coming along afterwards could see actually look this bit is the genuine historic structure this bit is what the modern reconstructors have done. And I think that matter about what our state of knowledge is and whether actually it's authoritative enough for us to to do the restoration, often that's a really important factor in making the decision whether to go ahead with the restoration or not. Mm. It's a very complicated process by the sounds of things. For ruins that look like skeletons of buildings, do you have to carry out regular surveys to make sure they're still safe, that walls aren't going to fall down, this sort of thing? We certainly do, yeah. I think in the way that I've described, ruins can be particularly vulnerable historic sites. So we usually, as a minimum, will carry out building surveys every five years. If we are finding that there are potential problems or issues that we just need to keep an eye on, that can be much more regularly. So we'll go in and we'll look at every single element of a site and look at its condition and the things that are impacting that condition and make a plan to remediate that issue. We also do much more regular checks, so weekly or daily checks. If we're getting little bits falling off of a wall, little bits of stone, little bits of mortar, it can be a sign to us that in time we need to do a bit of maintenance in that particular spot. So I guess the next logical question then for either of you is, does it get more difficult to conserve a ruin the older it is? I think that it doesn't necessarily matter how old a site is. Of course, something that is new or a new addition, a newer addition, can be relatively easy to maintain. But some of our prehistoric sites are pretty robust. They've lasted a long time. And the things that are left to us, the things that are left now, are probably going to be there for many centuries more. 
It usually depends on how they've been treated. So going back to the idea of the concrete and the cement in a very vulnerable stone and lime mortar structure, that can cause some really horrible issues. So sometimes it can be very well-meaning, but potentially harmful modern interventions that are the cause of problems, not the standing remains that have been there for hundreds of years. I'd agree with what Sam says. It's another factor I'd not appreciated, I must admit. No, well, they thought they knew best. And who's to say that some of the things that we do aren't going to cause our successors to wince? But to come back to the answer to your question, no, the conservation challenges don't correlate exactly with how old a structure is. As Sam says, prehistoric sites of sarsen stone, it's very, very hard. Hadrian's Wall is built of very, very hard stone, although actually its core was just as vulnerable to vegetation getting in and attacking it as other things were. And I've mentioned earlier a number of sites that give us particular concern for conservation. Some of these post-medieval houses in ruin, things like Hardwick Old Hall or, or, or Kirby Hall or Sutton Scarsdale, they have quite thin walls, sometimes of brick, and that can be a real problem. If water gets into the wall heads of those, that can cause re- real disaster, and you have to keep coming back and maintaining them, actually, on a quite regular basis. So for a number of those sites, you know, we haven't done this yet, but we are actually considering some quite radical things, like actually putting modern canopies over the top of them to protect the wall heads. It wouldn't be a restoration of the historic state. It would be a modern structure and it would have to be designed sensitively so that it doesn't conflict with actually the often beautiful appearance of of what this site would look like. But it would protect a very vulnerable part of fabric. And that's certainly something that we are talking about at a number of, of sites in our care, some of the newer sites actually that we look after. Yes, I presume that would also have the added benefits for visitors on a rainy day being protected from the elements. (laughs) Yeah, it does. And I I suppose I do have to admit to that, we haven't mentioned it before, that uh, yes, keeping sites as outdoor attractions in Britain isn't always the most pleasant experience. So a broad question, how do you manage something that will continue to decay? Because let's face it, things don't last forever. When does English Heritage intervene and take drastic action for certain buildings? I think you've, uh, again, hit the nail on the head there. We, we have to accept that everything decays. Conservation isn't about maintaining everything in its current state. It's about slowing that rate of decay down as much as possible so that we can maintain things for as long as possible. But, you know, as soon as a piece of stone comes out of a quarry, it starts to decay, even if it is very, very hard. It will start to decay and it will start to lose form. So conservation is all about maintaining properties and reducing the rate of decay in the best possible way. Maintenance and monitoring, I think, are the watchwords, perhaps. Exactly. We touched on it before, but uh, is it appropriate to restore a ruin? This was a question that uh, I guess a lot of people would want to know. I think the answer is just generally it depends. It absolutely does depend. And we've talked about some of the practical factors. I suppose I just need to throw one other one into the mix. And again, this is specific to the site, is you have to understand the full history of the site, how it got into its present state. And, you know, for some of our sites, like monasteries that were suppressed by Henry VIII, the act of suppression, that's a really important historical process that I think our presentation of the site 
should honour that, that it happened and that to try to undo it actually is a bit, for me, would, would actually be a, a serious ethical issue. I mean, actually, for sometimes that story, as I say, is a very dramatic and powerful story in its own right. And as I've, I think, already said, a monastery that's founded in the 14th century would only have existed as a monastery for two centuries and would have existed as a ruin for more than five. So, you know, actually, the whole balance of its history, I think, has got to be seen, you know, in the totality. Yes, and the reason for the ruin is is part of that larger story. Yes, completely. Going on to that reasoning and presentation of English heritage ruin structures, how does English heritage improve access for people to get around them? Because obviously some of them are very tall with no flaws that you wouldn't be able to climb up, but some of them have been altered. We, We mentioned Kenilworth Castle, which is great. You can go really, really high up into the towers and stand where Queen Elizabeth I would have stood looking out as she stayed there. Well, Kenilworth Castle is a lovely case, and I I was involved in it, so I'm really always happy to to talk about it. That project came exactly from this presentational issue that, until a few years ago, you had to stand at ground level at the bottom of a building and try to imagine something that was happening 60 feet above your head. And a friend of mine, an architectural historian nearby, used to say, you've got the baldrick's eye view of history, because you, there you are, down in the servants' quarters at the bottom, and you're talking about what Elizabeth I was doing miles above your head. <laughs> so clearly there were presentational benefits. When we started to think about it, restoring the building as it was was out of the question, because the amount of material that had been taken down after the Civil War And we didn't know what form it took. There are two whole walls of which there are hardly any pictures surviving and I simply just couldn't do it with any authority of knowing that I was restoring it, designing it accurately. So what we came back to is to put in some structures that would be modern interventions. And we chose, you know, to use steel because it's quite lightweight. It can be beautiful, but no one would confuse it with Elizabethan structure. But, and this is the important thing, it does nod to bits of the historic structure. So the way that the walkway, the stairs, for example, we put back within the part of the building where stairs had been, and we put walkways in that actually worked with our understanding of how people historically would have circulated around the building when it had floors, you know, which Mm -hmm. doors you would go through in what sequence in order to get from the outside into, you know, where Elizabeth I's bedchamber was or or the long gallery at the top. And we could put walkways in in the configuration that did that. So we had a design and then we sort of looked at it and we asked other local residents, now what do you think about this? Do you think this is too much? Is it going to be... It's going to change the appearance of the site, but, you know, are you going to be upset at seeing these things? And people said, well, yeah, I think there's a little bit too much more stuff in here. But, you know, if you take out that bit and that bit there, then you might get something. Yeah, I think we could live with that because it'd be well hidden by that wall there. So that's kind of the way the process worked. And we talked to stakeholders around. We talked to engineers about what would work. And all of those things sort of came together in producing something. But I'm very gratified that you spoke so favourably about it. And I know a lot of visitors that have been there have said what a wonderful facility it's been. And it's helped people appreciate the historical site, but also to get a completely new perspective. There you are up in the open air, looking with these wonderful views that people haven't had for a very, very long time. 
over a, a you know a modern landscape and that's a great experience in its own right yes i should point out to anyone who doesn't have a head for heights don't look down because <laughs> <laughs> it is very high up it is very very high and up, you do yes, feel indeed. quite exposed but perfectly um, safe though before of, anyone yes, anyone worries it doesn't wobble in the slightest so no it's, uh, it's, no, great. it's very very solid indeed we've talked about all the different reasons that a site might be restored conserved or adapted for visitor benefit vegetation problems of the elements safety all the challenges involved and considering all of those what are the best ways sam to ensure that people can continue to enjoy exploring and discovering the stories of these ruins that english heritage cares for at english heritage we use a variety of methods to try and explore those issues and explain some of the history that might not be obviously visible on site so you might find a panel or a guidebook would be available we do a lot of work digitally so a lot of information might be on our website and that can often include reconstructed images so whilst we might not have enough information to reconstruct a building on site all of our expert evidence would be brought to bear on that drawing but it would give the best possible understanding of what we think that building would have looked like so there's a variety of means yes and i think uh, the podcasts and audio guides and video these modern multimedia can also help tell that story as well Oh, I'd say that's absolutely right. And as time goes on, let's hope that we will find, you know, new innovative means of of communicating to as many people as we can. Just how brilliant these sites may be, how important the stories are that they can tell. The point I just keep coming back to is how varied the experiences that we can get on them. They're absolutely not the poor relation of the roofed sites, that they are every bit the equal of them. You've been listening to the English Heritage Podcast. Next time, we'll explore the influence of Sir Charles Monk's travels on the design of the buildings and landscape at Belsay Hall in Northumberland. Whilst he's travelling, Charles is busily visiting historic sites, taking measurements from buildings. He's sketching lots of the things he sees and recording them in his diary. Thanks for listening. See you next time. <laughs>